Hi, everyone. We hope you're enjoying Season 5 of Elixir Wizards. Before we get into today's show, we want to make a quick announcement. We're currently looking for an engineering manager to join our team. If you have expertise in React, Elixir, or Ruby, a track record of improving engineering processes, and a proficiency in the design, maintenance, and assessment of technical architecture, we'd love for you to apply. Our team is fully remote in the United States, and first-time managers are encouraged to apply. Head over to smartlogic.io slash jobs to learn more and submit your application. Thanks, and now here's the show. Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by SmartLogic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Justice Epen, and I'll be your host. I'm joined by my kaleidoscopic co-host, Sunday Mint, and my prodigious producer, Eric Ostrich. This season's theme is Adopting Elixir, and we're joined today by none other than Sophie De Benedetto, old-time friend of the show. How are you doing, Sophie? Doing well. Thanks for having me on. Super glad to have you on. You're about to publish a new awesome book or an awesome new book. We'll talk about the book for sure, but we want to know (laughs) what's new in your life. How are you? Yeah, lots of stuff, lots of stuff. So I don't know like where this will publish timeline wise to some of the things I'll talk about. So either I'm announcing and plugging upcoming events or encouraging you to check them out on available channels and shaming you for missing them. But some cool stuff coming up on Codebeam 5 in March this year all virtual, as I'm sure you can imagine. And this year I've joined the program committee and it's been really cool just to see all the thought that's been put into making a remote conference really special, right? So that you're not just kind of sitting at home, staring in front of your computer, which you can totally do for free with talks that are already on, you know, YouTube or posted elsewhere. So there's a lot of cool, really dynamic activities that are going to go down this year, like Q&As and panel discussions and just kind of the conversational interactive stuff that you're not going to get in, I think, your average online conference and maybe not even going to get an in-person conference. So definitely encourage folks to check that out. We're going to do a Q&A with me and Bruce on the Programming Live You book. I think there's also going to be, this was just announced, a Q&A with Bruce Tate and Jose about NX, this shiny new thing that you guys may have heard of. And uh, a couple other great talks that I'll shout out from some of my new podcast co-host, which I'll also tell you guys a little bit about later. So we've got Alex Kutmos talking about observability in Elixir. We've got the incomparable Steven Nunez talking about Ruby Raptors and what other languages have to learn from the Beam. And yeah, just plenty of good stuff coming up in Code Beam. So check it out, get a ticket if this gets published before March. And if not, check out talks once they go live. Well, we're looking at publishing this on March 4th. Is that right, Eric? Perfect. So just a few days left for a couple of non-early birds to get their tickets in if I've inspired anyone. Oh, I'm sure that you have. Codebeam is supposed to be an awesome thing. I've never made it, but maybe I will make it this time around. It sounds yeah. really cool. You gave us a lot to go off of there. <laughs> <I feel laughs> Sorry. No worries. It's super so exciting. So many things. So many things to dig into. Is this your first time being a, a programming committee person for a, a conference? So this is my first time on the program committee of Codebeam, but I'm usually one of the co-organizers of the MPEX NYC conference. We didn't have our event last year because it's normally in May. So you can imagine why we did not have it last year. I'm not sure what we're thinking of doing for the coming year. Stay tuned. Might be virtual, might be another skip. But it was really fun to kind of get back involved in that sort of community planning stuff since MPEX this year. Unfortunately, sadly, had to be skipped. Are you still writing Go? On the daily these days? 
Oh my goodness. Let's rant about Go. Actually, I did have a rant when you asked me earlier. I'm writing Go a lot at GitHub. Go is one of our paved path languages. Sorry, paved path? Paved path. So it's kind of just like a language that we have a paved path for. Like we have the tooling to support putting it into production. Mm-hmm. Whereas Elixir is not one yet, but maybe that will change in the coming months. So I feel like I'm sure I've said feelings about Go other times that we've chatted, but... Say them again. Oh, well, okay. Well, there are some things that I've come to enjoy about it, which is it's nice to work with something that's statically typed. It gives you a lot of answers for free and that is good. But as I was thinking about that, I was also kind of realizing maybe one of the reasons why it's so nice to have that static typing in Go is because it's one of the few tools that are on offer for even reading through code paths and sort of figuring out where things go and how they fit together. But that could just be, you know, the very cynical side of me talking. But it's not so bad. It works. It does stuff. You can do things with it. What is R-I-I-R? Is that how you pronounce that? I have no idea. Eric, I was just Sorry. I, uh, oh, is this in the chat? Yeah. In our back channel, I posted. Oh. <laughs> but what about rewrite it in Rust is what that is. Oh. <laughs> Since yeah. Rust is also statically typed. And I poked at that recently. And it's like one of the few static type systems that I don't hate. And seems Why don't to you be hate it? Beneficial. So like Rust lets you skip. So like in Java, you always have to say the class name, the variable equals whatever. And Rust, you can omit a lot of that and just kind of go on with your day. But they're still statically checking underneath the hood. And there's a Rust analyzer language server thing that does like a really good job of helping you along the way and all that fun stuff. So yeah, you like- just got to get... GitHub to switch from Go to Rust. (laughs) Top of my list, Eric. Top of my list. So when we were looking into this, I actually didn't realize that you were A, at GitHub, and B, that you didn't write Elixir in your day job. You're just such a prominent name in the community (laughs) that I just, like, assumed that you write Elixir, like, every second that you're breathing. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> have you tried to get it at GitHub or into your daily life more? How's that been going? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll, those are kind of two different things, right? Or they could be two different things, GitHub and daily life. There is a small but growing cabal of folks at GitHub that are very interested in Elixir and that have a lot of experience with it, including some other folks that are prominent in the community. And there are some plans. There is an opportunity, I think, that might be coming down the pipe to do a little Greenfield app in Elixir that might get us a foot in the door. But in the meantime, it's been pretty fun just to kind of get together with some of the other engineers at GitHub who have worked with Elixir or who are curious about it. We just have like a little Elixir channel and we do this sort of internal meetup almost every other week where we'll either somebody might give a little presentation, maybe a lightning talk or use it as kind of like a place to test out talks or conferences and other events, or we kind of just get together and hang out and talk a little bit about Elixir. And it's really fun to have a group of people to just socialize about Elixir with when so little socializing is happening in the world now. But as for how else to get Elixir in my daily life, certainly working on the live view book has kept me like plugged into writing a lot of Elixir. But as that starts to wind down, you know, I'm open to suggestions. What other Elixir things are out there that I can engage myself with? What do you think you'd recommend for people who are kind of in the same scenario, very passionate about Elixir, but don't get to write it in their day job? Are there things that you would recommend that they do or maybe avenues that they could take to bring it in? Yeah, that's a great question. So bringing Elixir into your day job feels very relevant to what I believe is the theme of your guys' season, right? Elixir adoption. Happy to chat a little bit about that. 
plenty of ways to go about elixir adoption. I'm sure you guys are more or less experts at this point, all the episodes that you've done on the topic. But one thing that comes to mind that I've experienced in the past when we worked towards some very successful elixir adoption at my previous company, which is the Flatiron School, we kind of leaned into this eventing system. So like leveraging event driven design to get Elixir greenfield applications into the ecosystem. So we ended up building on our existing RabbitMQ like async messaging system to build out this event-driven architecture where we could start peeling off responsibilities from the monolith into microservices. And when we had an opportunity to build a new microservice, and when we're already using RabbitMQ as the backing system for all these messages, why shouldn't that microservice be an Elixir? So that, of course, wasn't the only way that we drove forward Elixir adoption, but I think kind of leaning towards event-driven design, leaning toward asynchronous messaging is a great way to bring in anything Greenfield and certainly Elixir, which is a great technology for working with messaging. So event-driven design, I think, has come up recently. Is event-driven design and event sourcing the same thing? I probably am going to get that wrong. No, I mean, I, I just know. Googled it. There's definitely such a thing. As yeah. Both. So, yeah, I think they're the same thing. I maybe. feel like they're the same thing as far as I'm concerned for like talking about it in my day-to-day life. I'm sure someone would make an academic distinction. I don't know what the rest of you guys think. We don't I was actually that. reading about event sourcing last night because of a tweet Chris Geithley made. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how I understood it was a constant stream of events is a way to track the state of a thing mm-hmm. versus having a static state that you update per event. Like you just have a ton of messages for events and that's how you kind of keep track of state. That was my five minute read into just trying to understand <laughs> what he was talking about. And then the website that gave me that description hit me with all the ads this morning. So thank you for that. Fantastic. I mean, isn't blockchain just an event driven architecture? I'm shrugging for your listeners. I don't know anything about blockchain. I just wanted to piss off Eric. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. So a question about GitHub. It was originally a Rails app, right? It is a Rails app. The monolith itself is a Rails app, but there's a lot of other services in the mix, I'm sure you can imagine. So we've got stuff in Go, in Ruby, lots of front-end stuff in React and other JavaScript frameworks. Are there others? There's probably, I mean, there's other things I'm sure floating around here and there, but those are sort of the main technologies on offer at the moment, as far as I'm aware. Mm-hmm. We just got the definitions of both of these terms. Event-driven architecture is used for any kind of software system, which is based on components communicating mainly or exclusively through events. And then event sourcing is a more special term, which I assume means a subset of event-driven architecture, referring to systems where the whole application state is stored as a sequence of events, like we just described. So, yeah. Just, yeah. I think you guys are right on. Very cool. Very cool. Super duper. Learning. So I guess then a great way to kind of connect these things together would be for you to tell us a little bit about how does the Rails app, I guess, interact with whatever the backbone of this event queue is? And what is the event queue? At GitHub or? Sure. I mean, if you're allowed to tell us, I don't know. Sure. I mean, I can tell you a little bit about it. We have the, I don't know if proprietary is the right word, but like inner source wrapper around Kafka more or less, which is the eventing technology that we use to communicate between components at the GitHub system. But the system that we built out at Flatter and at my previous spot that enabled us to kind of bring a handful actually of Elixir apps into production was basically just wrappers around RabbitMQ. So in Ruby, we were using the Bunny client and in Elixir, we were using X Rabbit Pool and I think one other lib. But we actually built out, and this was super fun. I feel like I've maybe also talked to you guys about this in the past. We built out our own set of libraries in Elixir that would wrap RabbitMQ and kind of support our event-driven system for our microservices. And we called it 
railway. I forget why we called it railway. I think we were looking for transportation themes. Yeah, we just really learned a whole lot about event-driven design from that, about Elixir, about leveraging Elixir's fault tolerance, especially when it comes to handling messages and recovering from failures. And a lot of those learnings are what inspired my colleague Stephen and I to create a workshop that we're giving at Codebeam this year. I think it's March 9th, like the first day before the conference starts, and it's called Greenfield Elixir, Building Greenfield Elixir in a Legacy World. And it really just focuses on what we've been talking about, how to use event-driven systems and RabbitMQ and Elixir specifically to bring Greenfield Elixir apps into your legacy ecosystem. So if anybody feels like that's relevant to their interests, we would love to see people there at the workshop. Wow. As a person that professionally segues, that was an excellent segue. <laughs> really, really. Unplanned. Yeah. Unplanned, <laughs> elegant, heart, barely even shameless self-plug. The best ones are. We also noticed that your job title is engineering manager. Is that correct? I was an EM at the Flatiron School, and I'm happy to talk about that experience, especially because I made a choice to transition back to an IC role, which is what I'm doing now at GitHub. So I'm happy oh, to talk about that yeah. journey. Definitely, because we have had this kind of like top of mind as we at SmartLogic have been searching for an engineering manager, subtle plug, not so subtle plug. And we were actually just curious. We've come across a decent number of people who've been individual contributors and maybe have thought about moving to engineering manager or people who really love writing code and maybe would be good at it, but don't know if they want to manage people. So there's so many different aspects of it. Can you speak to your experience a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, I want to say, even though I transitioned in the past year back to an IC role, I was not running away from being an engineering manager. I really enjoyed that role. I got a lot out of it. I learned a ton and I'm certainly not ruling out transitioning back to that direction in the future. So I got really lucky in that this was my first EM role, by the way, the, the role that I had at the Flatiron School. I got really lucky because I became the EM at first of a team that I had been a member of, and I had really great relationships with the people on that team. There was a lot of trust there, and there was like a lot of great communication. So to start from that and then transition into managing some of those folks was a really, really strong foundation for being able to play that role well. And I was not only in a position where I knew the people I was managing really well, knew kind of their work and what their goals were and what they wanted what they were struggling with, but also they knew me and felt comfortable giving feedback to me. And I think one of the hardest things to get as an engineering manager is meaningful feedback from your reports. It's so hard to give your own manager feedback, right? On the one hand, you're like, they're fine. They're great. My life is fine, you know, whatever. And on the other hand, you don't want to say anything like critical about the person that ultimately is kind of in charge of your career at that time. So having that trust in those good relationships enabled me to get some early feedback as I was stepping into this role for the first time. And one of the things that I really struggled with was letting go of some of the technical sides of things and letting go of some of the day-to-day -day coding. So I was lucky in that, and it's different everywhere you go, right? But I was lucky in that at the fine school, I didn't want to totally leave behind any engineering work. And the way that this team was set up enabled me to do some hands-on coding, not very much, but some, and kind of more of the EM stuff. So I didn't have to totally say goodbye to writing code in the day-to-day, -day, but I did have to say goodbye to like owning large technical projects and the implementation of those projects. And something that I did, I think a little bit, at least at the beginning, was kind of step on the toes of some of my engineers because I didn't want to let go of that level of technical control. But again, because those personal relationships were there and they were strong, one of my reports was able to give me that feedback like pretty much right away. 
basically by saying, hey, back off, you know, in a professional, friendly way. And it was hard to hear, but it was really eye-opening. And I was lucky that they felt comfortable offering me that feedback. So yeah, that was kind of some of the early growth pains there. And then EM'd that team for a couple months. And then I transitioned into managing that team and another one of our teams, which was kind of, I forget what we called it. I think we called it core platform. It was kind of like DevOps and our overall architecture and infrastructure team. And that was also really fascinating because I was stepping up to a level of responsibility that I hadn't had before and that my number of direct reports was growing. But I went from being the EM of a team that I was deeply familiar with all of the technical work of that team because I had been a full-time individual contributor on that team to managing a team whose domain I knew basically nothing about, especially having done almost little to no DevOps-oriented work myself. So that was definitely a challenge, stepping into a team that I didn't know and a technical domain that I wasn't familiar with. And I think what really got me through that was it really comes down to trust a lot, getting to know and trusting my engineers to make the right decisions, to inform me appropriately. Nobody's perfect, right? It's not to say that you don't have to do anything and everything will always just succeed, but leveraging those relationships and really relying on engineers to do what they do best, I think was pretty key to the success of both those teams. And then moving back to an IC role, what was the decision-making process like there? Yeah, it was a tough decision. So one of the reasons why I decided it was time for me to move on is because I felt that I needed a new set of technical challenges in particular. So I had been at the Flatiron School on and off for like five or six years. That's a long time to be at a company. It kind of gets to the point where people trust you a lot, which is great, but it also means that you don't get challenged as much if that makes sense. So I kind of wanted to be somewhere where I'd be like a really little fish in a big pond. And at that point, I was also like, okay, so I want to move to a bigger environment where I'm going to be faced with the kinds of challenges that I frankly can't even conceive of right now. And I have to decide, am I going to stick with this EM track or go back to the IC? And I was just kind of feeling the itch to be a little bit more technical. And I felt that a lot of my success as an engineering manager had to do with my skills as a technologist. And I sort of knew, and I still know that I have a lot to learn as an engineer still. So I wanted to put in a few more years as an IC, kind of growing my engineering chops before I make the decision again, if I do, to move back to people management. Mm -hmm. And Eric actually recently made a move from the IC to the engineering manager kind of role. Does anything that she mentioned there kind of stand out to you as being especially true in your situation? Yeah, just the can echo letting go (laughs) and not being in the weeds is very difficult. I don't know what it looked like before Eric was an engineering manager, but every time I turn his calendar on, I kind of like scream internally and then I turn it back off. (laughs) I don't miss having a thousand meetings every day. I used to, I mean, this is back in the day of in-person offices as well, but I remember this is why I started wearing a watch. I mean, I was literally checking my watch every minute of the day because you might be in the hallway getting a drink of water and realize that in two minutes, you have to be in your next meeting. So I definitely don't miss that. Someone recently mentioned to me that with the advent of Zoom and Google Meet and all that, that people's expectations around timeliness have become even more strict. Has anyone else noticed that? Like in the past, if you were five minutes late to an in-person meeting, it wasn't a big deal. But now if you're one minute late to a Zoom meeting, they're pinging you basically. 10 out of 10 out of 10. I was two minutes late to something and my manager DM'd me very friendly like, hey, did you forget blah, blah. And I was like, no, I was just reading an email and it's been two minutes and I'll be right there. But When there's no excuse, you don't even have to get up from your desk and walk to a different location. 
I too assume that if someone is one minute late, that they might have just straight up forgotten and are not coming. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that I frequently complain about that has changed recently is that when the pandemic started and people were no longer seeing each other in person, they suddenly wanted to like stay on meetings after and like chit chat. Yeah, I had been remote before that. So this was sort of an unwelcome change of events. Justice is almost known for like cutting out right at the hour. <laughs> I know. I'm like, all right, I don't need to be here anymore. Bye. <laughs> oh my goodness. Speaking of timely people, our Melvin, he is always on time. And exactly at the, if your meeting is 15 minutes, he is done at 15 minutes. It's incredible. <laughs> That's impressive. A great inspiration to me. So let's get to the meat and potatoes of this thing. Your book. It's a live view book. Live view is like the hottest new thing until NX. But but your timing, know, right? your, your timing is great. The NX book is going to be a while. I know. So, I'm excited for the NX books, plural, I think. We could talk about oh, that yeah, too. I'm sure. But tell us about your book. Where are you in the process? What's the elevator pitch? Yeah. So we're actually going to beta so soon that I expect beta to be published by the time this podcast gets published. So very excited for your listeners to check it out. I really think LiveView is a big deal, obviously, and I think you guys might agree. I think it's really the future of single-page apps for the most part, right? Of course, there are things that you're going to use more complex run-in frameworks to handle. Like if you're building a sophisticated in-browser game, like you probably need all the JavaScript and LiveView is not for you. But increasingly, the demands of users are such that any old web page is going to need a degree of interactivity and probably a degree of real-time notifications as well, in which case people are going to be reaching for LiveView more and more because what it does, which is originally what Web Frameworks period did, it's what Rails did, it's what any good web framework does, is it moves the details into the framework, right? So the details that support the WebSocket communication, the creation of notifications, the handling of DOM updates, all of that is in the framework of LiveView. And you, the developer, are responsible for the details of your own application, the details of the features that you're delivering to users. You're not on the hook for establishing WebSocket connections, making sure they're reliable, you know, managing throughput, sending events, updating the DOM. All of that is framework code, and you can trust that it just works. So I think we're going to see huge adoption of LiveView for really just like your everyday web app. We've mentioned a few times on this podcast and maybe other places that a nice thing about Elixir is that it's not magic. Having worked with LiveView a little bit in Bruce's class last year, I did feel a little bit like the generation was super well done, but also I didn't know what it did and what was left for me to do. So... Do you feel like it's a little magical or how do you feel about that? I'm really glad you said that, actually, because I've been wondering for a while, pretty much up until the advent of LiveView, like, what is the Phoenix magic going to be? You know how people say like Rails magic a lot. So I do kind of think it might be LiveView. LiveView, in that it handles so much in the framework, is going to feel a little bit like magic to some people. And I would counter that with two things. I would say if you take a step back and think about how Phoenix in particular leverages OTP and processes, then it's going to demystify it a lot. And I can talk a little bit more about that. But also, I agree that code generation is kind of magic. It's hard to get a sense of the inventory, what's been built for you, what you need to do. Luckily for you and all of our wonderful listeners, the upcoming programming LiveView book actually spends a fair amount of time on this. We do our best to really show you 
how you're going to build Phoenix Live View applications from the ground up in the wild in the future. And you're going to use generators. So we're going to need to understand what they're doing under the hood and not just kind of take a cursory glance at the code, but really understand what's generated, how it fits together and how to build on top of that. So we definitely cover that in a couple of chapters at the beginning. Hmm. What kind of experience level are you targeting as far as the audience for the book? Yeah, I'm super glad you asked that. So this book is called Programming Phoenix Live View for a reason. The intention here is I don't want to say replace Programming Phoenix because it's, that's a great book and it's, I think, still very useful. But I think that Programming Phoenix Live View is going to be how people program Phoenix from now into the future and maybe to a certain degree how people program your average web app from now into the future. So we are trying to provide a bit of an on-ramp book. We expect Elixir experience and familiarity with Phoenix of the readers who are going into this, but this book is really trying to tell you what you need to know about how Phoenix operates and how to build Phoenix Live View applications. So if you're looking for like, I'm a total pro, I just need to know how to do this one fancy thing in Live View, this is probably not the book for you because the Live View documentation is great. And if you really feel the need for a book about how to do this one thing in Live View, you should write that book. And I would love to hear about it. And I'll actually put in a plug for that in a minute. But this really is trying to take you from zero lines of code to a fully functioning, complex Phoenix Live View application. We're building it out with our readers step by step, absolutely from the ground up, just like you would ideally in the wild, so to speak. So expect to put in the work to really set things up. Sophie, this is such a great opportunity because one of the things that you mentioned that sent up my kind of like world domination antenna was that ideally in the future, programming Phoenix Live View will be like the default choice, for example, a startup looking to build mm -hmm. a new web application. And I am really interested in making Elixir, you know, the number one intro to programming language. And so what I want to ask you is I want to find out, and we've talked about this before, maybe even on the show, but I just want to keep reiterating it, which is like what do we need to do to make Elixir more accessible to people who are new to programming? Yeah, that's such a great question. And I bet, Sunday you have some thoughts on this too, having gone through Bruce's class last year. But I feel like Elixir has a super friendly learning curve. And the more mature the ecosystem has become in the past, even like year or so, the more just excellent developer tooling has become. And I've seen teams that are brand new to Elixir several times over the course of the past year. I've seen teams like that become highly productive in Elixir very quickly and put brand new apps into production. So at the Flatiron School, we actually deployed, I think, three Greenfield Elixir applications to solve like very non-trivial problems within the span of like a year, year and a half. And those were each instances in which you had teams of engineers who were more or less brand new to Elixir, maybe save for like one or two hobbyists, who were able to ramp up super quickly, you know, get the stuff into production, observe it, maintain it. And I think since I even had those experiences, the ecosystem has matured with telemetry, with, you know, better releasing support. So I kind of feel like it's there. I feel like people who are new to Elixir can grok it. The support is there in terms of tooling for the development experience, for the release experience, for, you know, instrumenting and observing your Elixir app in production. But I'm sure I'm missing something. Yeah. What do you guys think? It kind of brings me to another question or point that I've been thinking about recently is that here at Elixir Wizards and in general as people, developers, we really want to see Elixir adoption spread across the globe. What did you just say, Justice? World domination? Yeah, I like to use that language because it's <laughs> uncomfortable for a lot of people. So. 
you know. But, you know, we want Elixir adoption to be more widespread. And, you know, I think the majority of jobs, Elixir opportunities out there are usually Elixir Phoenix. And so I could potentially foresee this awkward phase in between when or if you can tell me about how you feel about this one, live view adoption is where people are finding less resources on Phoenix because live view is kind of taking over that space and that SEO space too, because you actually can't find a lot of traditional Phoenix things now on the internet because Phoenix live view is in the name as well. And you mentioned that with the book as well. It's Phoenix live view, correct? So I'm curious what your take on that is. Yeah, I think programming Phoenix Live View is how people are going to program Phoenix. I don't think there's much of an argument to be made at this point for saying, I'm going to generate and build a Phoenix app that does not include Live View. Does that mean every single one of your pages in every view is going to be an interactive Live View? No, like certainly you can still have some static pages. Those things are not mutually exclusive. So I think, you know, finding resources that are explicitly Phoenix only. I don't know how necessary that's going to be. Of course, if you're talking like how to OAuth with Google in your Phoenix app, that's not necessarily specific to Live View. I would hope resources like that would still be available because you might do that in your Phoenix Live View app, just as you might do that in your Phoenix app, if that kind of makes sense or if that answers your question. Yeah, a little bit. I think resourcing too is completely different, right? The way that resources are in Phoenix versus the way that resources kind of like live update and live view. So for maybe no, legacy apps, the wrong word, because Elixir is not that old, but I mean, it's still legacy. Yeah, you can have a legacy app. Yeah, but for like applications that exist, people who are new to Elixir, they're joining a company that's three to four years old, and they are learning Phoenix, and they're trying to get their head around how the router works, and they're not finding resources on it. Do you see that situation? Or do you think that we're all moving to live view? Rocket ship yeah, that, that's a great question. I don't want to totally discount that and say like, oh, that wouldn't happen. But I think it's going to be mitigated by a couple of factors. First of all, I think it's very much the intention of programming Phoenix Live View as a book to provide an on-ramp into both Phoenix and Live View. So like we talk about the router, we tell you the things that you need to know in order to feel very comfortable with Phoenix as a framework and working with Phoenix Live View. Obviously, that's one resource. It's not all resources. The book is going to tell you everything you need to know about Phoenix. I think I actually kind of agree with you that in an ideal world, we'll be moving toward a place where people by default use Live View to make their UIs responsive, right? Not responsive like this, but responsive back and forth, right? Anyway, that doesn't make any sense. My point is that, so that I think that you're right on. I think what Sunbee's getting at is less the tooling part of the question or the capabilities part of the question, but more of the resources and tutorial part of the question. Which I do think, and that's also where my question is oriented, because I do think that probably the book that you're writing, I, I know that Programming Phoenix is like this, you know, for an intermediate or advanced programmer, you can just pick up Programming Phoenix, for example, and learn Phoenix and build a web app. My question is more oriented around the, the book that always comes to mind is Michael Hartle's Learning Web Development with Ruby on Rails book, because that mm -hmm. book teaches somebody who doesn't know anything really about programming how to do test-driven development and make an app with a front end and everything. Mm -hmm. And I've always kind of felt like that is the missing link. This is why I always ask this question just to see if anyone has also came to this conclusion, which is like, I think the missing link isn't just, hey, can we take an existing programmer who's in the Rails world and turn them into a Phoenix programmer? Because of course, the question is, can we take somebody who's not a programmer and make them useful mm -hmm. to web development? 
And I also want to give Eric the chance to, because I think Eric has probably got the strongest anti-live view feelings from a tooling perspective. So I want to also give him the opportunity to respond to this. All right. So, yeah, I guess like as far as, as you had mentioned, small comment, we actually just deleted live view from the one app Gasp. that we're writing. We had it only there for the dashboard, whatever that is. And then it was like, eh, goodbye. <laughs> So anyways, like as far as smart logic, most of our clients just need your typical static pages or whatever. And then there's a handful of we might have leapt beyond the live view setup. And we also have a handful of React devs and they like to do React. So that's a good reason to let them. <laughs> totally. Yeah. So that's at least as far as that goes. And then I said this recently in a... I continued chatting with Torin Billups in the Discord he mentioned about where it's just like most of my pushback against live view is just totally from ignorance and I just haven't cared to research it yet. More it's just like, what does deployment look like? That's like my biggest concern about it, where at least at one point I remember hearing that when the socket disconnects and reconnects, it just refreshes to what it had in the state when you loaded the page. So if that is no longer the case, or if I just heard wrong, that would be good. Yeah, that's actually a great question. And I think it's something that recently come to our attention as a topic that could use a little bit more love in the book. So I don't think you'll find content specifically answering those questions about, you know, handling failures and handing lost connections in the beta version. But I think we're thinking of throwing some stuff in for the upcoming version. So I don't want to talk out of turn because I haven't dug super deeply into this topic yet. But I will just say that that's not my experience that you kind of revert back to the state on page load. And then I'll also say that Going back like a year and a half ago when LiveView was still very, very new at the Flatiron School, we had a couple of instances of LiveView in production and we had pretty easy time dealing with building releases and deploying. There wasn't anything particularly special that we needed to do other than, you know, some setup to configure pods to talk to each other across like distributed nodes, but that wasn't necessarily a LiveView's problem. That was, you know, distribution problem. And yeah, no like complaints from users regarding glossiness. I'd be very curious to hear about other folks' experiences with deploying LiveView because it's changed a lot. I don't even think we're not even at, you know, the 1.0 release. That's probably coming up in a couple months. I think targeting this year. So if not you guys on the call, if you haven't been deploying a lot of LiveView, perhaps listeners will weigh in in Twitter or elsewhere. Yeah, so I think, and you also answered another question I had of, sounds like we need to, if not PG2, you at least need like a Redis. All the pods need to somehow talk to each other. Yeah, so LiveView out of the box is using the same PG2 server as the rest of your Phoenix app. So hooking it up with PubSub, integrating it with Presence, you don't have to do anything else. So that's more just like the framework does that for you. And the configuration that I was referring to that we had to do to get it up and running didn't have to do with because it's LiveView and we're configuring LiveView in code, it just had to do with like our Kubernetes deployment. And we didn't have these two pods configured to talk to each other, which was a personal problem, I guess you could say. It's a personal problem. It's not a LiveView problem. I will say that on the resource front, where I'm kind of coming from is that as a developer, I have a career trajectory and I need to work on some skills. And Phoenix is one of them. And when I go to work on it, I can't. My most accessible Phoenix resource is Eric. And we talked about his calendar, you know? So... That's always been kind of a struggle for me in the last about a year or so is like trying to find 
resources on just Phoenix, just to have a better understanding of the code that we already have in place. So this will not be a problem in a future where we all move to LiveView, and I just have to look at LiveView documentation forevermore. But it might be, like I said, like this awkward phase where we're in this transition. Yeah, truthfully, I don't know if that's a problem that's going to go away as people move more and more to LiveView, because I think there are things that you still need to understand and know about Phoenix that have nothing to do with LiveView. You know, programming Phoenix LiveView doesn't change the way that you generate migrations and set up, you know, your backend and core modules. It doesn't change the way that you would leverage Phoenix routing. Like you're still going to define routes and kind of need to work with that. So it might mean, let's say that finding resources on working with Phoenix channels directly becomes more and more difficult because that's not going to be the go-to technology that people reach for when they're starting from a new Phoenix app. But I wouldn't expect that the uptick in popularity of LiveView would like edge out existing resources on routing, on database migrations, on seeding your Phoenix app. So I think if we're feeling a lack of those resources, I think it's a bigger problem that I wish I had the perfect answer for. One thing I always tell people and try to tell myself is if you had a really bad day and you couldn't find the answer to this thing and you just wish you had the resource that told you X, you need to write that resource. And obviously that depends on many other factors in your life. But that's something that I would love to see more of. And this might be a good time for me to plug the fact that I'm stepping into the Elixir series editor role at ProgProg. Bruce is going to be moving over towards our maker series and putting out a lot of very exciting stuff coming up on Nerves and Elixir and other maker projects. So, I mean, not open call to inundate us with proposals. But if you or anyone else wants to talk about writing for the Prags, I would love to have that conversation. Wow, that's really cool. I'd love to see just how much involvement Prague Prague has in the community. One thing I want to ask is specifically around testing in LiveView. Does the book go into, again, I'm just going to reference the horrible book because I love it so much, is that it really holds your hand through a developer workflow with test yeah. development. How much does programming Phoenix with LiveView address that? Yeah, that's a great question. I like the way you phrase that. It holds your hand through the developer workflow. And that's pretty much our intention, not hand-holding in a bad way. Like we trust that the reader is a smart person who can figure things out. But there's a nice section in the first chapter that I like the title of. And I think it's called something like Program Live You Like a Professional. And it kind of lays out that our intention in this book is to walk you through how you are going to build Phoenix Live View apps from the ground up in the wild, like in your own life in the future. And that means that you're taking the development and yes, testing workflow that you would want and that we hope you'll take in your own life in the future. So there's a lot of great content on testing in there. And as for my personal experience testing Live View, I found it pretty nice to test so far. Wow. I'm definitely going to pick up a copy. I love that. It's my favorite hey. style of technical book. I think that yeah. hold my hands. Don't make me think. I want to develop muscle memory. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, you're I definitely am... going to have to think. You're not off the hook for thinking. It's uh, a nice, I, I hope, balance between walking you through a very realistic development workflow to build out this application, as well as kind of diving under the hood and understanding how things work and why it's done a certain way. But we really did want to keep the focus on you, the reader, building out something cool. So you're going to build out an app for a fictitious game company. You're going to build out all these admin features, including some really cool interactive dashboards. And then you wrap up by building like a simple in-browser game. 
<laughs> I like that the live view book is going to do the thing that Chris McCord started right? out saying, don't do yeah. this. I mean, there is literally a line in the book that's like, you might not use live view for your involved front end games. But the thing is, I think that the book, first of all, is packed with plenty of very realistic features that you'll build that are great use cases for live view. And then we wanted to wrap it up with building a game because A, it's fun and cool to build something that you get to interact with that way. And as I'm sure you guys will agree to a certain degree, games and the rules that one applies to game are a great way to teach programming models. So we give you lots of great, you know, real world scenarios that you're going to build out. And then we wrap up with something fun. That's just like a great learning exercise. Hmm. Which kind of brings us to this more generic adopting Elixir question, which is just, do you think LiveView will make things easier or harder for the average developer to pick up Elixir? I think easier. I do. I hope that's true. I think for a few reasons. I think that building web apps with Phoenix Live View is going to enable teams, especially small teams, to be highly productive and to move very quickly. And I think that is one of the huge factors that drive adoption. So I think in the same way that teams may have adopted Rails years ago because of blogging in 15 minutes and you can prototype quickly and you can get stuff out the door quickly. The same is very much true of live view. And I think that one of the reasons why that's the case, well, a couple of reasons, one that I already mentioned, all the details are handled so well in the framework. You get to focus on building application code for your own users. And then I think too, there's really a lot to be said for keeping the mind of the developer and the team of developers firmly on the server. You don't have to deal with all of those like, did you push the front end change? Great. Let me pull that down. Or like, how are we going to integration test between the React client and the API backend? You get rid of kind of those often brittle client server contracts that you're responsible for maintaining and kind of integrating across your ecosystem. And you keep the mind and the focus of the developer in one place where it's easy to write code, easy to test, easy to deploy, easy to observe, easy to maintain all the things that enable us to write good code that hopefully doesn't break that much. So we're getting pretty close to the end here. I do want to ask you one or I guess there are kind of two questions here. One is, generally speaking, writing a technical book, what advice do you have to give to somebody who's looking at or considering writing a technical book? And adjacent to that, with PragProg, what kind of benefits are there to writing a book with PragProg? Yeah, I love those questions. So I would say the first thing to know about writing a technical book is that it's hard and it takes a lot of time. So if you thought it would be a fun side project, it's probably not that. There are definitely days where I was like, you know, banging my head against getting some piece of code working or, you know, getting the phrasing or the writing exactly right. That said, it's been just an incredibly rewarding process. I feel like every round of revisions and seeing feedback from our editor and from our readers, I just feel myself getting smarter. And it's interesting because I feel that through this process and through all the learning and growth that I've undergone, while writing this book, I also feel myself becoming a better developer and a better teammate at work because I'm able to, especially in this remote async world, communicate so much better, articulate my thoughts and my plans so much better. And I feel like it's almost given me superpowers in my day job to have been put through the ringer, honestly, on some of these, you know, rounds of editor feedback and review, but, you know, just become so much stronger because of it. So that's kind of the takeaway. Like it is hard. Of course, it's hard. It does require like a non-trivial time commitment, but the benefits are obviously that you wrote a book and now you're going to be wildly famous beyond your craziest dreams. First of all, no, you're not. But also that you're going to see these benefits in your life, you know, as an engineer or whatever your role is. So that is something certainly that I'd like to call out. And as for writing it with the Prags, I've 
really been enjoying it a lot. And I think they've got a lot of infrastructure in place that makes it so much easier than, I mean, I can't compare it to writing for other publishers because I have not done, but then it would be, let's say, without this infrastructure. And I think it really comes from the fact that this is a company or a publisher started by engineers, right? This is Dave Thomas. This is Andy Hunt. This is people that are developers first and foremost, and then wanted to enable other developers to be authors and to write books. So things like the book building system, there are things about it that are a little archaic, but I don't know that there's anything else like it out there where you're using version control to both write your prose and commit your code and seeing it built and generated into the PDFs for you to review like every time you push up. Stuff like that is incredibly helpful. And then our editor, the editor for the Elixir series, the technical editor, Jackie Carter, is so incredible. I don't think I've ever learned more in like a five-minute conversation from one person than I have with Jackie. Every time I talk to her and go over her feedback, like I said earlier, I just feel myself getting smarter, feel myself becoming a better writer. She is just so experienced and so hardworking and has been absolutely tireless in getting this book into shape. And I know that she treats all her authors the same way. So I feel super lucky to have had a chance to work with her. That's really amazing. And I have to say, I mean, it doesn't happen very often, but whenever I come across somebody I know and I've talked to has written a book, I always really enjoy reading the book because then I can kind of hear it in their voice. I internalize it that way. And it's really fun for me. And having taken Bruce's Live View class and having talked to you, I'm really excited to read it. And I haven't, like I said, looked at Live View really since then. So I'd like to see how it's changed, if at all. It's only been eight months, really, but that's like millennia also, you know, in 2020 or 2021 speak. So very excited. Thank you so much for putting in the effort to write a Live View book. I think the community will really enjoy it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for that sentiment. And I'm very excited for you to check it out, for all of your listeners to check it out. Well, you know, Sophie, that we'd like to give the last few minutes of time to you to plug anything you want, to shamelessly self-promote, to ask the audience for anything. So please, the floor is yours. So I'll refrain from shamelessly self-promoting because I feel like I really effortlessly and subtly just wove all the self-promotion <laughs> you know, into our earlier conversations in a way that I think will make me sound really great and not braggy. But I will talk about a non-Elixir, non-programming thing that I want to plug that I'm super excited about, which is more glasses, more glasses for your face. So a friend of mine, actually, Steven, turned me on to Zinni.com. I'm not getting paid by Zinni to tell you this. It's kind of like a cheaper Warby Parker, which is great because, frankly, I guess I'm about to throw shade at Warby Parker, but it's not that affordable and the glasses are not that great quality. I'm wearing some right now and the coating has started to wear off. So I just feel like I'm constantly looking through smudges, but they're not smudges. They're just not great. So why not pay actually really cheap for glasses that maybe are not that great and get a bunch of fun ones. So I just kind of like went nuts and I ordered a few different frames, including a pair of prescription sunglasses with pink lenses. None of them are here yet. So maybe next time I'll talk to you, I'll tell you how terrible they are and I'll retract all of this. But next time you see me, I might be wearing some extremely stylish pink sunglasses. That's cool. And I just <laughs> got it. Zennyoptical.com sounds very cool. I actually am supposed to wear glasses. I just don't because. Yeah, actually, that's that's exactly it. No, I feel like I'm very vain. That's it. So I don't wear them, but that's great. Super excited about the live view book. Can't wait to read it. And we'll probably buy it right out of beta if that's how that works. 
And yeah, super cool having you back on, Sophie. You're just a great member of the community and a huge contributor. So thank you. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. It's always so fun to hang out and chat. And I'm sure we'll do it again. Rock and roll. That's it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you again to our guest, Sophie DiBenedetto, for joining us today. Elixir Wizards is a Smart Logic production. Today's hosts include myself, Justice Epen, and my co-host, Sunday Mint. Our producer is Eric Ostrich, and our executive producer is Rose Burt. We get production and promotion assistance from Michelle McFadden and Sine Daniel. Here at Smart Logic, we're always looking to take on new projects, building web apps and Elixir, Rails, and React infrastructure projects using Kubernetes and mobile apps using React Native. We'd love to hear from you if you have a project we could help you with. Don't forget to like and subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast player. Follow Smart Logic on Twitter for news and episode announcements. We also have a new Discord channel. If you'd like to join us there, look for the link on the podcast page or head over to smr.tl slash wizards hyphen discord for the invite link. And don't forget to join us again next week for more on adopting e-elixir. Elixir.